Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 28th of March, 2014, here across the Dateline in Japan. And today I'm joined from the United States by Robbie Martin, the brother of Abby Martin and co-founder of Media Roots at MediaRoots.org, the co-host of the Media Roots radio podcast. And I'm sure he never gets sick of being introduced as his sister's brother. <laughs> but he's never. also a human being in his own right and <laughs> has his own record label at uh, RecordLabelRecords.org, which you can check out online and is a website bristling with enough Masonic imagery to choke a cat. So uh, that's a very interesting <laughs> website you have there. Uh, Robbie, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, James. I'm a avid listener. So well, well, I'm, it's great I'm, to finally come on. It, it's great to have you here and to talk about some of these subjects. And perhaps we can just start by talking a little bit about yourself for people who um, might not be aware of your work at Media Roots or at Record Label Records. So let's just talk a little bit about some of the things that you do and uh, how you got involved with the alternative media. Sure. Um, I guess what really kickstarted me, um, you know, like how a lot of other people got kickstarted was, was 9-11 itself. Um, and, you know, it, it, as time went on, especially during the Iraq war, um, like a lot of other people, I started to really wake up to how um, effed up the, the mainstream media was and how it was just working hand in glove with the U.S. government to spread, um, you know, war propaganda and then, I mean, that was kind of my reaction at the time. Um, I wasn't, I wouldn't really consider myself an activist back in 2003. And then in 2004, things really changed for me when um, um, myself, uh, my wife, my now wife, and uh, a friend of mine named Benjamin Vanderford decided to make a, a fake beheading video and share it on um, internet file sharing networks. And I, I guess we did not realize how just how bad the mainstream media was until uh, the mainstream media picked up the video, broadcast it as a real beheading video, and then immediately tried to smear us in the press um, like 24 hours later when they realized it was a hoax. So I think that was really the catalyzing event for me where I just, you know, I just went sort of headfirst into to activism and to researching things like 9-11, um, you know, just researching and trying to dissect how all the propaganda is actually functioning um, and things like that. And and then when my sister started Media Roots, was, which wasn't too long after that, um, you know, it was sort of like the perfect union of, you know, how do I get all this this uh, angst and, uh, and frustration out, you know, and uh, I started writing articles for MediaRoots.org, um, started doing the podcast with my sister and uh and then that's just kind of what went from there and then um you know and then i made uh and then i started doing documentary films um using only found footage with without narration um you know like american bisque which sort of is a timeline of all the agitation propaganda after 9-11 until today um revolving around you know how they keep the war on terror going and it spans all the way through the bush and obama administrations and then I made a follow-up movie to that with just footage that was left on that cutting room floor. You know, I had almost an entire hour left over from that movie of uh, stuff directly about the anthrax attacks. So that's kind of how I got into that. And, you know, for about a year, the anthrax attacks specifically were was a heavy focus of mine because um, I found that a lot of people in the 9-11 truth movement weren't weren't mentioning it enough it was it seemed like a very neglected area so that, that's kind of where i sat for a long time um 
and then now I'm I'm just kind of uh, I'm trying to focus on um, you know who where does this propaganda start from? You know, if it doesn't start from the administrations themselves, you know, who are the think tanks um, and the people, the players that actually devise these ideas, like the intellectual, you know, propagandists. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm focusing on right now. Well, that's, uh, that's more than a mouthful. You've definitely had a, quite a few uh, interesting experiences in there and a couple that I want to talk about specifically, but I think you're exactly right about the anthrax attacks. I think it remains an underreported part of what was swirling around in, with 9-11 and, of course, the, the really the direct an- antecedent to the Patriot Act. So it really does deserve a lot more scrutiny than it's had even in the alternative media. And uh, I've done a, f- a couple of podcasts on it now, but I, I think it really does deserve... To, as someone to do a, a good documentary to put some of these facts together. So um, so I, I absolutely salute you for the work that you've done on that subject in particular. And also I understand that music is, is an integral part of what you do. And uh, of course, as I say, you have your own record label. Tell us a little bit about that and how that nexus is in with the, the work that you do in the alt media generally. Um, well, it didn't really mix in at first. I mean, they were very separate worlds for me um, until extremely recently. So so like I, I was kind of a the guy who would always sort of scoff at or, you know, have this sort of condescending attitude towards political art in general. Sort of in my youth, I, I felt that they that the two worlds should remain separate, um, and that was just coming from my own perspective as an artist and a musician. I didn't want my political ideals to like color my my work at all. Um, and then just sort of over time, I think they just started organically intersecting. Um, you know, when I think American Bisque is is really when it started, where I where I started putting together this film, um, spanning all these different decades, and I, I came up with the idea. Well, why don't I reflect sort of each time period with with electronic music that was from that particular time period? So so like during the you know the Nixon administration in, in American Bisque, I play a lot of music from um, composed by an electronic music composer named Wendy Carlos who. Uh, was very popular in the 70s. Uh, she did the soundtrack to Clockwork Orange. And I think that sort of got me thinking, well, you know, maybe I could start using my own music since I'm an electronic musician um, to to sort of accompany this work that I'm doing. And it wasn't until my next movie, American Anthrax, that I, I decided to almost score the entire thing myself with, the, with a few exceptions. There's a few other songs by a band called Soviet France in there. But I'd say the the uh, majority of that movie is is an original score um, that I that I did, and I don't know. I just I really enjoyed doing it. I think it was just a it was you know kind of a way for me to use both sides of my um, my output and and sort of combine them together for this. Um, I don't know. American Anthrax is kind of like has a horror <laughs> a horror movie kind of score going along with it, and um, I don't know. I just had a lot of fun doing that because. You know, you hear a lot of a lot of music on a lot of you know conspiracy or even non-conspiracy documentaries. Usually, falls into the more like background music, sort of you know quasi-symphonic, um, you know, sort of like orchestral score kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think actually what what kind of drew me to that sort of making putting weird sort of um, scary music under this kind of content was the movie Power of Nightmares uh, by Adam Curtis, and then his follow-up. Um, what was it called? The Trap, where he uses a lot of music by John Carpenter and um, Ennio Morricone and all these just sort of avant-garde composers. But I thought that, you know, it really it somehow really works um, when you're 
when you're showing content that's pretty much you know full spectrum disturbing um, <laughs> in all these different ways. So, um, and then you know, I think my literally my first time ever combining you know my own like putting politics into my own music is when I went on Abby's show. Um, I think it was only a month ago now uh, to perform that song. Uh, we killed kids on the basketball court using using Obama's voice, uh, saying that, you know, having Obama say all these different horrible things that America has done. Um, and that's, I think that's, it kind of, you know, made me realize that there's a lot of power, I guess, in, in combining this kind of music with politics. Um, and I don't know, that's kind of where I am now. I want to do more of that kind of work, I guess. Well, that's very interesting to hear about that that sort of uh, development, because uh, I certainly uh, have promoted a lot of music that does combine the, the political aspects along with the music aspects on my podcast before. And it's uh, it's interesting to see how that comes together or or doesn't come together for various artists. And, uh, and for people who haven't heard that performance, we'll put a link in uh, to the show notes to that uh, just a few weeks ago there on, on Breaking the Set. Um, and I'll assume that the the uh, over the top Masonic imagery and rep record label records is ironic, unless of course you're angling for Jay Z's spot. On, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I don't want any. I don't want the Mark Dice Brigade to come after me for the, uh, the the Masonic jacket. But I'll just say for the record that I find the Freemasons absolutely hilarious. Um, I they've been a subject of interest of mine for many years. Um, and it all goes back to the Monty Python sketch, the architect sketch, where John Cleese is trying to show um, a group of like elite, you know, bankers. Basically, he's trying to propose to them this building. Um, he's an architect, and he and just in the middle of his presentation, he gets down on his knees and starts groveling. How do I become a Freemason? Please let me in. I want to learn the handshakes. I want to learn the codes and. And it's and it kind of goes off onto this tangent where Terry Gilliam, you know, draws an animation of what a Freemason looks like, and it's like a guy with his pants off wearing you know reindeer horns in the middle of the street. So, I think I mean there's a lot of humor there, and I think, but it's also a serious thing for me too because, you know, being inside sort of the 9/11, you know, the the fringe media movement, I have noticed there's a lot of idealism still about the founding fathers and the history of this country that I do not think is accurate because I think there's a lot of history about the United States that's been neglected and also overshadowed by a lot of sort of the Illuminati conspiracy culture when really what a lot of people mean when they're saying Illuminati symbolism in America is that it's Freemasonic symbolism, like like the Washington Monument or, um, you know, or the pyramid on the, the back of the dollar bill and things like that. Um, so... I kind of I try to stay in that realm sort of what I'm talking about, you know, secret societies. I'm very specifically honed in on Freemasonry and just trying to, you know, point to interesting facts in the past, uh, such as the first third party in the United States was called the Anti Masonic Party and it was a reaction to um, essentially the assassination of a, of a Masonic um, defector who was about to reveal all these secrets about the Masons. Um, and stuff like that. So it's just a, you know, it's just a, 
a fascinating uh, subject. Um, and no, I'm not a Freemason. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting that on the record. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's go back to what you were talking about um, earlier with the, the the fake beheading video. I, I find this fascinating, and it's something that I I only v- vaguely picked up on at the time. This was well before the Corbett Reporter. I was involved in any way with the alternative media. So it was something that I was just seeing as a spectator. But now going back to it, um, from my perspective as host of the Corbett Report, it is fascinating to to think of how quickly and how virally this video spread in that sort of early um, internet viral video era. Uh, with, uh, with, as you say, mainstream media picking up on this beheading, this f- clearly fake beheading video as if it were real and propagating it as such. Um, I understand that this was originally created by um, uh, Ben Va- Vanderford and yourself and others as a part of a campaign that he was running for city supervisor. But perhaps <laughs> you could tell us about the, the actual genesis of this video. Yeah, I mean, it, it my friend Ben... Um, was a, a crazy eccentric dude and and uh he had the idea that that well he was running for san francisco uh, district supervisor at the time and while he was running for this position the nick berg video uh was released to the mainstream press and that was being played everywhere and he had this idea well you know since the nick berg video could have uh easily been faked and i and when i say could have i don't mean that i'm saying that the nick berg video is a fake what i mean by that is that there's so much ambiguity and um and compression and uh it's it's a very um let's just say it's a very low quality video the nick berg video so his idea was sort of using that that sense of ambiguity and uh low quality video compression um you know, why don't I pretend I'm a, an American hostage who's about to be beheaded in Iraq? And then maybe if someone sees this, they'll, you know, it'll go viral and then it'll help my, my political campaign. And I don't think he was ever seriously running for district supervisor. I think it was just kind of like a performance art thing he wanted to do because when he, when he even went to these like district supervisor debates, I mean, he would, he would just say off the wall shit and, I mean, really, he, he was kind of just like trying to be like a disruptor and kind of just, um, you know, trying to just throw a, a wrench in the whole uh, San Francisco electoral process, I suppose. Um, and keep in mind, we, we did this when we were like in our early 20s. Like, I, I think I was 22 um, when it happened. So, you know, it wasn't the best idea in the world. But uh, so Ben had this idea, you know, why don't we just try filming something in your garage um, with your camcorder where I basically, you know, pretend to be an uh, American soldier. So I think this was like on the day that the Nick Berg video was released, we we just went into the garage and spent about an hour, literally, um, you know, filming this this scene. And we didn't even actually, you know, go as far as showing any you know, severed head or, or anything like that. It was just, it was implied. So, so like in the video, I'm rubbing the, the dull end of a knife against his neck. And that's sort of where the video cuts out. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the, that, that's as far as the linkage goes between him (laughs) trying to use it to help his uh, political campaign. Um, and I think, you know, as you can tell by me relaying this story to you, we we didn't have the necessarily like the best intentions or some kind of, you know, we weren't going at it like the yes men and trying to 
to um, to hoax the media and and say, look what you guys did. You fell for it. That wasn't our intention at all. Uh, at first, I mean, we we did, we had no idea, you know, how just how truly stupid the media would be to pick it up. And I think it was three months later. Uh, I think it was my mom uh, who called me in the morning and, and said, "Turn on Fox News right now. Ben is on Fox News." And I had no idea what she meant. You know, how can my friend Ben be on Fox News? And I turn on the channel, and there's Ben, um, <laughs> and the, and and the, sort of the 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 mockery and the sort of performance art aspect of Ben was on display on Fox News, where the first interview he allowed himself to um, to be part of, he wanted the cameraman to come into his room uh, and his room was nothing but a, a mattress on the floor and literally a giant pile of Diet Coke cans in the corner of his room. And here's my friend Ben sitting in his boxer shorts and uh, nothing else. I mean, he's literally, you know, almost nude in his boxer shorts, um, t- basically telling the story about how he did this hoax video. And that was, the, that was the video interview that the media ran with sort of after the fact. Um, <laughs> So I just was just so shocked and also just I was laughing out loud. I just couldn't believe it. Um, but it turned out what had happened was uh, Associated Press and Reuters um, were actually the ones who caused all this damage. And by damage, I just mean that they ran with a story on the wire services that went out to thousands of different media outlets that an American soldier had been beheaded in Iraq by Zarqawi. And his name was Benjamin Vanderford. And, uh, and yeah, and so that story actually went out as a fact. Um, and it wasn't until I think maybe five or six hours after that wire service was sent out that they found out that it was a hoax. And the reason that they found out it was a hoax was because Ben actually gives out his, his street address in the video. So it wasn't until six hours after this wire uh, story went out that somebody decided to verify um, the information in the video, and they actually just went to Ben's house and knocked on his door. And once uh, once they did that, they realized he was alive, and that this was a completely false story that the AP and Reuters had put out. And that's sort of how the whole thing started to unravel. But you know, as most of your listeners, I'm sure, would understand, once a wire service sends out a story like that, um, you can't simply just retract it because you know. <laughs> um, there were newspapers being printed that morning saying that an American soldier had been beheaded in Iraq. You know, so it's not till 24 hours later that a you know, printed newspaper can retract something like that. So it was just really interesting to to see how fast false information can spread. Um, and regardless of you know verifying after the fact, it can still cause a significant amount of damage um, based on. The extremely irresponsible behavior of these people working for Associated Press and Reuters. I don't know whether to laugh or to shudder at that story, maybe a little bit of both. And I think that's also helped along by the fact that the, I'm looking at NBCNews.com that has an AP story of that uh, of, of the, the Vanderford story up on, on the website and including a picture of of him sitting there in his boxer shorts in his on his mattress in his room and uh, with his exceptionally hairy uh, shoulders. <laughs> so there's a lot to laugh at and to uh, shudder at in in the images as well. But but it is I mean, it's it's such a 
bizarre story because, as you say, I don't think anyone was really expecting that it would actually blow up into a real story because even the most cursory fact-checking of even... You would expect they would even try to verify this with the, with the United States Army itself. I mean, just to run with, with this based on a video and just a video alone is... It's pretty staggering, and uh, and it says a lot, obviously, about the the mainstream media. That I think, really, up until the early part of this decade, people had had pretty much taken without question. And it wasn't really until the run up to the Iraq War and and all of the uh, the the media chicanery that went along with that that I think people really started to break out of their mainstream media trance. And uh, and I think a lot of us held a bit of naive fantasy about what the the mainstream media was and how these were professionals who who really took their job seriously and and carefully vetted their facts obviously not uh tell us about your your own reaction to this and and your realization of of what the mainstream media really is all about oh it was a it was a huge wake-up call i mean i had you know i had a a built-in cynicism uh about the mainstream media but it was mostly like an uninformed sort of you know just you know i knew the media would spread lies. I knew that they had hyped up the Iraq war and that they had echoed all this propaganda straight from the white house itself. But I guess this was just such a shock to my system because I had no idea how irresponsible that they would actually be, you know, as you, as you just mentioned that, that they wouldn't even verify for example, with the U S army. I mean, that, that in of itself is strange or that they wouldn't verify that he was still alive, you know, by going to his house before running a story or calling him on the phone, which they could have easily found his phone number. Um, so it, it was, it was truly amazing, uh, just how quickly it got picked up. And then, and then what was, what was immediately shocking after that initial shock of, of seeing how it got picked up by the world media, essentially, um, was the reversal that the media did after the fact. Um, Associated Press started running with stories saying that the FBI was um, going to investigate us. And the FBI statements quoted in these articles were saying things like, um, this is, uh, they were using language which implied that it was illegal what we did. Um, and, you know, of course, I was only 22. I was, I was scared. I was like, well, w- wait a second. You know, we didn't do anything besides upload a video to a file sharing network. We never sent this video to any media organizations. We never sent it to anybody saying this is a real video, nothing like that. Um, and, and I guess that, that was a big wake up call for me to see how Associated Press never, never apologized uh, for spreading this false story or not doing any verification, but instead they turned around and immediately uh, tried to um, paint us as the essentially the enemy, like we were, um, you know, these dangerous uh, criminals trying to fraud the the media. Um, and then the FBI came came to my house. Um, they they interrogated me at my home. Um, knowing what I know now about my civil rights, I probably would have asked for a lawyer <laughs> before that happened. Um, but you know, I was I was a dumb kid. I mean, I I I did it. So I, I talked to the FBI, and they had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever about file sharing. Um, about peer-to-peer transfers. They didn't even know what a torrent was. Uh, they, had, they had no understanding of what it was that I did. And instead, they just seemed to 
want to ask me about my associations with any terrorists. Have I ever been involved in any terrorist acts? Just really, you know, classic 9-11 hysteria line of questioning, essentially. Because keep in mind, this was 2004. This is only, you know, three years or less than three years after 9-11, early 2004. Again, ridiculous, although I, I suppose you can understand the media's uh, interest in keeping the kind of copycat effect down on, on something like that. So, of course, they would play Absolutely. up the angle that there's, there's, there's going to be consequences to this. But, uh, but again, it, it really does just show the egg on their own face and, uh, and the ridiculous attempt to cover that up. Um, and, and that, I think, speaks, uh, again, I mean, it's, it is just one kind of silly little incident, but it, I think it speaks to the, the much, much broader problem that we have going down obviously down to today and uh, and the, the 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 kind of ridiculous stories that continue to get play one that strikes me um, in particular was during the the Libyan invasion a couple of years ago when the idea was floated that uh, that Gaddafi was actually feeding his troops Viagra in order to fuel rapes of uh, of Libyan civilians um, which again turned out to be a completely and utterly totally foundless uh, claim but it, it of course it was run on all the networks and they were all talking about it and uh, you have wolf blitzer intoning in serious tone oh what you know oh is he feeding viagra to his uh, his troops oh and of course it became the sort of the story of the moment and uh, and uh, and eventually later on they had to admit there was absolutely no basis to it but of course they do that under their breath at the back of the broadcast and and uh, that was just one of those incidents along the way that that um that that continues to show how basically things of absolutely no no real value can be reported on ad nauseum as they f- suit the propaganda uh, the pr- uh, perspective and uh, objectives of the mainstream media. Um, how how about yourself? How do you see this uh, this, this the MSM's complete and utter lack of credibility and uh, morals uh, redounding through to today and and the types of propaganda that we're seeing? For example, of course, surrounding your sister's recent uh, uh, mainstream media brouhaha. Oh, I mean, there's there's so many examples, but yeah, I guess since that's since that's the most recent thing um, that I that I kind of saw from the inside, I, I, I could speak on that a little bit. I mean, it 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 shows me that there is the mainstream media has not improved. They haven't been more careful about what they report. I think the only significant change that I've seen since uh, the beheading hoax thing is that. It's well, especially during the Obama administration, is that the propaganda coming from the U.S. government is, I guess, it's more diffused. It's it's more uh, maybe that's the wrong word. It's more um, it's more subtle. It's not as like direct from the the horse's mouth. Like when you know during the Bush administration, the media would echo a lot of the actual language that that the Bush administration would use, and it was very like almost like childlike. Um, you know, neoconservative talking points uh, like access of evil and things like that. Um, but nowadays, since we have someone like Obama in office who's, you know, um, admittedly more articulate, and I don't mean to give any praise to Obama whatsoever, um, but the, the propaganda is, it's not that it's more sophisticated, it's a little more carefully honed and it's almost like more intellectualized. It's more... Um, I, I guess that's how I see it. So when the media, I think the problem now is it's it's harder in the mainstream media to directly point at something and, and say, look, that's, you know, White House propaganda talking points. It's more difficult than it used to be during the Bush administration. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that there's any less of it happening now. I mean, um, you know, I'll go into my sister's story in a second, but I wanted to cite one example, which was an interesting um, one that the media blew up and, and seized upon, which was that Al-Qaeda conference call. Uh, I think it was from about a year ago, which is kind of similar to that Qaddafi Viagra story that you mentioned, except I think this one was was leaked to a reporter named Eli Lake, um, who is a who is part of a neoconservative think tank called the Foreign Policy Initiative, and it was leaked to him um, by anonymous government sources right in the wake of all this Edward Snowden NSA debacle uh, that was happening. And it was sort of like a story that came directly from the White House, but filtered through anonymous sources and sent to these you know reporters, essentially saying, "Look, you know." Our NSA wiretapping um, actually helps prevent terrorism, and we caught you know all the Al Qaeda leaders on this giant conference call um, planning this attack in Yemen. You know, look at how good the NSA is, and, and I think that was kind of the intent of that story. And um, but it's getting harder and harder to find those obvious examples of like straight up White House, you know, American government propaganda. But they, but when you do find them, they're very apparent, and. This thing that happened with my sister um, was, I'd say, it was on par with the the sort of the um, learning experience that I went through with the beheading hoax, which was that when you know when the media talks about something, that they have a very specific narrative in mind when they're talking about something. So, regardless of what Abby's intentions were, or regardless of what she actually said on her off-script remarks about Crimea on her show Breaking the Set, the media immediately turned what she said into some kind of anti-Russian diatribe where she was, they were claiming that she was essentially, you know, bucking Putin on Putin's TV network and framing it in this very simplistic, jingoistic way while completely omitting the fact that she had been criticizing the United States' involvement in Crimea and the Ukraine for weeks on her show. Previous to that, I mean, she she talked about the leaked telephone calls by Victoria Newland and, and Robert Kagan. I'm sorry, <laughs> Victoria Newland's husband has, happens to be Robert Kagan. That's completely unrelated. But the the NATO ambassadors um, leaked phone calls about you know uh, where she's saying f the EU and that we putting that we're putting five billion dollars on the ground in Ukraine. So Abby wasn't going specifically after Russia. Um, and defying the Russian, um, you know, uh, modus operandi, she was sort of making a statement about just how disappointing it was to her that how distorted the media coverage has been on all sides. And and in in her mind, the Russian angle was distorted as well. And that was kind of what she was expressing. And and this was, I mean, and then of course she went on Piers Morgan to explain, you know, that the entire corporate media was sort of echoing the same. Uh, sort of anti-Russian slant and, and stuff like that. But no, it was truly fascinating being on the inside of that because you can see that almost everything that comes out of that is is distorted, um, including a lot of you know people's takes on it and the alternative media movement. No one, unless you're experiencing the story firsthand, unless you're Abby, um, you know, it, you you don't really know what's exactly is going on. So it was just interesting to watch this echo chamber sort of distort the message in every way imaginable. And then, you know, going back to the beheading hoax, I feel as if, you know, Ben, myself and, and my wife actually and unintentionally hijacked 
a narrative back then. And that narrative was um, essentially these people cut people's heads off. Uh, it was sort of an agitation propaganda um, sort of feeling that after the Nick Berg video came out, it was a way to get people sucked back into the Iraq war. Like, look how barbaric and animalistic these, these, you know, Muslims are for, you know, they cut people's heads off. Like we don't do that here in America. And the beheading hoax sort of almost took away some of the power of that. And it wasn't even really our intention, but looking back on it, I think that's essentially what happened. It, it deflated to a certain extent, the power that that propaganda had. And, Fast forward, you know, 10 years later, um, I think that Abby going out there and, and if you actually literally, you know, if any of these articles had literally quoted her entire statement, it would have sort of taken the power away from that narrative that the media was already trying to push, which was this sort of anti-Russian, um, you know, uh, we, we need to be hostile towards Russia sort of message. Um, and because of that, because they could, they you know that they couldn't fit neatly into their box, I believe that um, that a, a group of neoconservatives um, in D.C. hijacked that narrative and wanted to use it for their own purposes, and that, and that's what they did, and and that's kind of what culminated with Liz Wall um, resigning, and it was found out later that she was coordinating with um, a fellow of this think tank called the Foreign Policy Initiative, which your listeners will know very well as being um, formerly known as PNAC. Um, when PNAC was completely obliterated in the public eye, people thought that it was horrible. It, it, it pretty much had to reinvent itself completely. And out of PNAC, uh, out of PNAC's demise came this new think tank, which is essentially the same players. Um, and the Foreign Policy Initiative think tank's mission statement says that we need to pivot towards new growing world superpowers like China and Russia and take an adversarial stance towards them. Essentially saying that just because we trade with these nations doesn't mean that we should not assert our military dominance over them in a very um, direct way. Exactly right. And for people who don't know about this, I mean, this this has been identified for years now. I'm looking at a Salon article from 2011 talking about neoconservatives hype a new Cold War, talking about Eli Lake, who you mentioned earlier there. And uh, again, it's the same cast of characters that were that were really behind the uh, the run up to the Iraq War or behind um, the run up to the new Cold War. And of course, it seemed like maybe Abby could be their poster child for about 12 hours or so until it was discovered. Shock, horror. She's <laughs> she's been involved with 9-11 truth in the past and uh and of course then the uh the, the the message became a lot more muddled at that point because obviously they can't be promoting her as some sort of journalistic hero so of course liz wall stepped in to fill that void quite nicely um a very interesting turn of events and perhaps perhaps reflective of or, or reminiscent at any rate of that uh, decapitation hoax because again it's it's almost like they wanted to retract something that they could no longer retract after they went out with those first stories about abby and being courageously against Putin when of course it was it was really not in that framework at all but uh but they they couldn't really retract it once they'd uh, put it out there yeah exactly it, w it was sort of like I described it to Abby as almost like someone you know you know like a like an animal going for a you know a tasty fish they see in a in a lake and then as soon as they bite into it they realize it's like an electric eel <laughs> and uh and it's just it, it was like a shock to their system they I don't think that they realized they had no idea because all of this stuff operates on such a surface superficial level anyways so it wasn't until 
you know, this guy, I think, specifically this guy, Jamie, uh, Jamie Kerchick, actually looked into Abby's past and found that she had, um, you know, connections to the 9-11 truth movement and held um, a lot of quote-unquote radical ideas where she disagrees with the Israeli government's policies and, um, you know, she uses the word apartheid, you know, to describe Israel, shock, you know, just uh, things like that. And they were trying to paint Abby as this extremely radical, um, crazy person, essentially. They were trying to link her to, you know, um, some of the craziest things in the fringe alternative media movement. Um, and yeah, no, it was, it was very, very fascinating. And I, I learned a lot, uh, with this, with this event because Abby and I have been talking, um, for the last couple of years about, you know, what's going on with a lot of this American media coverage of, um, specifically the, the Russian anti-gay uh, legislation. And, you know, we we sort of were thinking, well, does this tie into Obama's, um, you know, uh, statements where he said that nations that, you know, that treat um, gay citizens with less rights than others um, will sort of be sanctioned and things like that. We didn't know where, really where it was going. But what was truly interesting was this guy, Jamie Kerchick, is actually when he was working for Radio Free Europe – um, which is a U.S. Congress state-funded um, pro-U.S. propaganda outlet. I don't know if many people even know that it exists, but Jamie Kerchick used to write for this um, this outlet and was one of the first people out there working for a U.S. state propaganda outlet, planting a lot of these seeds about the Russian anti-gay law. Um, and I'm not saying that the law isn't terrible or that it doesn't exist. I mean, it, we know that it does, um, but what was interesting is how he was using that information to sort of explain why we should treat Russia more harshly. And he was sort of, you know, and this was over the course of two years he was doing this. This is the same author who was writing editorials in gay, gay magazines like Out Magazine about how Bradley Manning should be executed and things like that. So we had no idea that this guy was even out there. And, um, and it turned out that six months ago, he did a, um, a thing on Russia Today where he protested the gay law in the middle of a roundtable discussion. Um, and he was asked on this roundtable discussion to explain why he thought uh, Chelsea Manning should be executed. And instead of talking about that, he decided to, quote unquote, protest uh, this law. Now, on the surface, you know, if you didn't know anything about his writings or his history, you would think, oh, this is like a genuine expression of civil disobedience. You know, great, good for him. Um, but it turns out that this guy is actually the mouthpiece for PNAC 2.0. Um, so I, I just found it really interesting that, you know, that, the, that this gay rights thing was being injected into the dialogue almost as a way not to convert or to um, manipulate conservative people because a lot of conservatives already think Russia is, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't have a favorable view of Russia. But liberals kind of have a neutral perspective on it, I think. And it wasn't until a lot of this pussy riot stuff, um, the gay loss stuff started to go viral that a lot of liberals started to sort of pile on to Russia and you know, and then we saw Google with with the rainbow flag logo and all that stuff. So it was it was amazing to watch this guy who was trying to inject essentially neoconservative propaganda into liberal thought 
um, to watch him be the main guy trying to take down Abby um, once all this went down. And then, and then when after he took, tried to take down Abby, he um, teamed up with Liz Wall, this other reporter who resigned from RT, and essentially propped her up as this sort of anti-Putin American hero who was, who was all of a sudden – Liz Wall was all of a sudden pro-America and pro-military and anti-Russia um, and, all the, and all this crazy stuff. So it was – I mean I guess you know, uh, to me being on the inside of it and knowing how false and fake all that was and how manipulated it was, it's almost on the level of like a Jessica Lynch kind of like staged event. But – I don't think people looking at it from the outside could tell how just how manipulated it was. You know, it's something that I think you really can only, you know, it's kind of like you just have to be, you have to see it from a first or secondhand perspective. So it was, it was very fascinating. And I guess my whole new thing now is I'm, you know, I'm going to be looking very closely at this foreign policy initiative think tank and looking closely at sort of this new breed of journalists who are going out there on behalf of these think tanks and propagandists to try to inject neoconservative propaganda into like that fringe or alternative media or liberal media. Um, Because I think that's where the real damage is being done. I mean, a lot of these people like Crystal and Dan Senior, they've been you know, their images have been so tainted that people, I don't think, take them seriously anymore as intellectual thinkers or journalists. Um, but like someone like a Jamie Kerchick or an Eli Lake, they're like this new breed of reporters who are breaking all these, you know, stories supposedly. And I don't think that people have really figured them out yet. And I, I guess I hope, my hope is that, you know, sort of that in the same way that PNAC was sort of destroyed in the in the public image, that a lot of these new reporters will be discovered and outed as being essentially mouthpieces for these um, these warmongers. Well, one good starting point for people who are new to all of this information might be the Truth Out article that was written recently about this whole situation and the uh, Jamie Kerchick-Liz Wall connection and, and Foreign Policy Institute and how that all links together. So I'll link that in the show notes for this episode. I think it's uh, particularly humorous uh, that the, um, the Kerchick's protest on, on RT in, in some way backfired on him because unlike any of, uh, of the mainstream kind of American networks, uh, he was not immediately taken off air. He was in fact allowed to to rant um, for some some time and then uh, was given another opportunity to, to participate in that forum and uh, and and allowed to rant again. So um, it was it was kind of humorous the way that backfired. And then of course. The uh, Abby Martin statements backfired on the whole Liz Wall situation in general. I mean, even before it happened, because it undermines the narrative that people aren't allowed to speak out on RT. So, so again, these people are being undermined even as they're trying to spread the message. It's kind of humorous to watch, but it's kind of sad to see that, unfortunately, their message has gotten so far in the mainstream media. Perhaps that shouldn't surprise it, surprise us at all. All right, uh, Robbie, we're coming towards the end of our conversation here, but I guess I wanted to ask you, um, what's what's next? What have, what have you got in the pipeline? What are you working on right now? Well, what I'm working on now, um, this you know, this event with Abby just totally took me in a in a whole new direction with with these um, foreign policy think tanks in D.C. So I'm actually I'm working on a film now, sort of about how neoconservatism influenced the Bush administration and um, it was, you know, it was so scorned um, and hated uh, by the public that they had to essentially rebrand what it, what neoconservatism is, and and um, 
you know, uh, essentially the movie that I'm working on is going to be about how these neoconservative think tanks manipulate the narrative and um, what they do when they're sort of found out and discovered, you know, how they reinvent themselves, how they rebrand themselves, um, going, going into this new era and how there's a whole new breed of young um, reporters in their 20s and early 30s who are spreading the same propaganda from the same people but haven't been discovered yet. They haven't been outed yet. And, uh, and it's just a fascinating history. I mean, you can even uh, go back to this Richard Pearl um, video uh, from 2008 or two, maybe it's 2009 where he is holding court over an entire room full of authors, people who have spent their entire writing career writing about neoconservative policies and, and foreign policy. And he's essentially telling this entire room full of authors, authors who have written bad things about him, that neoconservatism does not exist and that it is a myth. It is a conspiracy theory to suggest that the Bush administration was guided by a neoconservative foreign policy. And, um, that's just one example of how these guys are such so clever and like intellectual, you know, um, uh, Machiavellian intellectuals, I should say, that they that they are, that are even trying to rewrite the narrative to claim that they don't exist, and uh, and that's kind of how the movie starts is is how, you know, how these people know how widely hated they are, um, so they essentially need to reinvent themselves. <laughs> Well, that, that is a fascinating story and really does deserve more attention. So I'm looking forward to any work on that subject. Um, and again, people can follow follow your work at MediaRoots.org, RecordLabelRecords.org. Are there any, any other places you'd like to direct them to? Um, I guess if you just want to get my music specifically, uh, go to FluorescentGray.BandCamp.com. <laughs> That's it. FluorescentGray.BandCamp.com, and I'll link that up in the show notes as well. All right, Robbie, I think we'll leave it there for today. It's great to have you on, so thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, James.